0: All right. Psalm 34. So let me set the stage for you. Uh, David was still a young man. I'd probably say in his 20s by now. David's the author of Psalm 34. Back a decade or so ago, when David was about 15 or 16, the prophet Samuel had come and anointed David to be the next king in Israel. David didn't aspire to be a king Uh, He was simply a shepherd boy, spending his days and nights out in the fields with uh, stupid, clumsy sheep. Uh, It was quite a task, too. He fought off lions and bears with only sticks and stones and his bare hands. So he was a scrappy uh, young man and pretty courageous to be able to do that. Uh, Would you go up against a lion or a bear uh, to protect some animals? Would you lay down your life for some stupid sheep? I don't know. The kid had guts and he had some character. Uh, But the current king named Saul wanted to remain king as long as possible, like every other king out there does. Uh, He wanted a dynasty. Uh, He did not want some scrappy shepherd boy from the pitiful town of Bethlehem to interrupt his legacy of power. But it just so happened that Saul and his army were facing a conundrum. There was this incredibly formidable giant uh, from the town of Gath named Goliath. And no one could defeat Goliath. And yet the the terms between the armies uh, were that whoever would fight this giant, uh, Goliath, the winner of that battle would be the representative winner uh, for the the two warring nations. And there was a lot riding on one fight. That's a lot of pressure. No one in Israel was up for the challenge, except for scrappy little David. David. In his teens, he came out of the sheep pasture and steps into this epic story that you can read about in 1 Samuel 17. Uh, David believed that God would give him the victory over this nine-foot giant war machine of a man with huge hands and unparalleled strength because God had given him victory over a lion and a bear. Why not, right? Seems logical. Uh, Bears are about nine, ten feet tall too, so yeah, Goliath seems about the same. And so David goes up against, or goes up to Saul, volunteers to represent the entire nation of Israel, this young teenage boy, and the God of Israel by fighting this menacing uh, Goliath of Gath. And I can just imagine Saul looking at him and thinking, if he goes out there and wins, cool. Then we have the Philistines on the ropes and the victory will be ours. If he doesn't win, then this wannabe little pipsqueak who wants to be king will be dead. And I won't have to concern myself with him anymore. And so, works for me either way. Okay, David, may God be with you. Go off to your death, right? But surprisingly for both armies, and most of all for Goliath, David defeats Goliath the giant from Gath with one stone from his slingshot. And then he runs up to Goliath, pulls Goliath's swords from the sheath, and lops his head off. That's crazy, if you think about it. This guy was a dude. Okay, but everyone noticed, as the army went back into town, all the beautiful maidens of the land came out and began to sing songs about David, right? The lyrics went something like this, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David was handsome to boot. This made Saul very jealous. Jealous enough that he wanted David dead. So Saul hunted David down to kill him. He literally chased him throughout the land, through hill and valley and forest and desert and every nook and cranny he could. But again, David was cunning, uh, smart for his age. He had been out in the wilderness with the sheep. And most importantly, David knew God intimately. And he loved God with all that he was. And he depended upon God with his very life. And God consistently rescued David from the danger that he was in. Was David perfect? Was this why God rescued him? Not hardly. And we'll see that as we go through the rest of the summer. But was David faithful to follow God? Absolutely, he was. So today we're going to look at another psalm that David wrote, Psalm 34. Uh, Turn there, and I want you to look at the preface to the psalm. The title is, Taste and See that the Lord is Good. And then I want you to listen Uh, to what David, or when David wrote the psalm. It says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That sounds like an intriguing story, right? Uh, So before we get to Psalm 34, we're going to take a look at this episode in David's life so that we have some context as to why David wrote Psalm 34, all right? Um, the psalm was written during that cat-and-mouse chase between uh, David and Saul, and I want you to look where it ends up. So if have to 1 Samuel chapter 21 if you want to in your Bibles. Otherwise, I'm going to read it for you. 1 Samuel chapter 21 is where this story takes place. Starting in verse 10, David rose and fled that day from Saul. Saul's chasing him, right? So he fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Gath. Does that town sound familiar? Yeah, the town that good old Goliath was from. The townsfolk were probably not in super love with David right now, right? I'm sure that David was wise enough to not go to the one town in all the world that probably would hate him the most. But sometimes when we're being chased or hounded and when life takes a difficult turn, uh, we make spur-of-the-moment decisions from a place of panic or tragedy that we're in, and so we just do what we need to do. And so David fled from the frying pan of Saul's anger and his hatred into the fire of the hatred of the people of Gath. Verse 11, And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now notice, David's enemies consider him to be the king of the land, even though he's not the king yet, right? Um, Because David acted like a king, and Saul didn't, right? And so their enemies were more intimidated by David than they were by Saul, and those maiden songs got all the way to Gath. Why were these guys informing the king of this? Well, because uh, maybe David was there to attack them. Maybe he was, you know, going on the offensive here. They didn't know and so that they could take David out. He was considered a threat to them. So they bring this to the king, verse 12. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So David heard this, takes it to heart. David is listening and he's perceptive. He understood the precariousness of his situation. He accepted the reality that he was living in. Have you ever heard news that made your stomach fall to your knees or ankles or maybe even farther. Um, Your heart races, your ears begin to ring, you get that tunnel feeling like you're closed in, you're trapped, you can see no way out of the situation that you're in. Um, I've only had to endure this once or twice in my life, but thank God. But you never forget the feeling of when you're in that spot. And David understood the precariousness of his situation. He he had that feeling come over him and he got a healthy dose of fear that overcame him. Verse 13. And so, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. That's strange. That's just strange, right? So David acts instinctually, right? He did whatever he could to protect his skin and get out of that situation. He couldn't run because they outnumbered him and they could easily chase him down and, and kill him. He couldn't stay because they were on to him, right? They, so he acts insane and you know what? It worked. It worked. Verse 15 uh 14 and then achish said to his servants behold you see the man is mad why then have you brought him to me do i lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence shall this fellow come into my house just a note so it says Achish here in Psalm 34, it said Abimelech. Well, which guy is it? Is this the same passage? Uh, just like today, there were first names, last names, there were family names and other names, all sorts of stuff. Akish is most likely his personal name and Abimelech was the kingly dynasty name. Anyway, it's the same person and this Akish is like, this isn't David. This is a madman. He must be a lookalike or something, but this is not the man who killed Goliath and had all those songs written about him. Get him out of my presence. That's pretty awesome. And so look at what David does. He goes from there and he flees to a cave. Verse 1 of 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. My thought is that he did this to get away from everyone and try to get out of sight and out of mind for a while, let everything kind of settle down. But David is a born leader and people were drawn to him, as some folks are, and, and I want you to check out what happens. Verse 1, the second half, And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, They went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. And he became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So David's family follows him out into the wilderness into this cave along with everyone that was in distress and in debt and in bitterness. So these folks were in distress and debt and bitterness because of Saul's wicked, selfish, and pathetic government rule. And so they went out to David and, became, and he became their commander, their leader. So as I ask you from week to week to do this, put yourself in the story. Put yourself in David's shoes What's going on here? He's, he's had a mountaintop experience of, of killing Goliath, and then he's hunted by Saul because of it. He has to act completely insane to save his skin, and he runs into a cave to get away from everyone, and then all these people come to him for leadership. Now what? How, how is he supposed to lead these people? How do you take responsibility for 400 people, probably more? While in a cave, how do you provide? What's the plan? What do we do now? Right? And there's nothing worse than trying to lead disgruntled, discouraged, disheartened, and displaced people. How does a leader turn that around? And now we turn to Psalm 34. I want you to enter the mind of the man after God's own heart. Enter the thoughts of a leader appointed by God to lead. He didn't ask for this. It happened to him. Enter the prayers of a man who is humble enough to act crazy in front of a king. Enter the advice of a man who is leading a group of disgruntleds by default. A man who simply is responding to the will of God as it unfolds in front of him. And this psalm is a wonderful mixture of praise and wisdom, a mixture of testimony and personal story, along with the wisdom and discernment for life that came from it. It could very well be uh, David's kingly uh, advice or his way of explaining to the disheartened people that he was commanding and leading what it means to follow the Lord our God and to join themselves to this community that he uh, has to form together. All right, so how did David expect this group of malcontents to live? What was David calling them to? What were they to do next? Well, he was calling them to bless the Lord, seek the Lord, fear the Lord, and trust in the Lord. And those are our points today. So here we go. Verse 1 through 3 of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. at all times continually bless the lord so when things are going well and when things are going poorly when you have killed the giant the giant from gath and when the people of gath want to kill you when you are the anointed king and when you are the hunted by another king when you are living in a palace when you are living in a cave when you have a savings account when you don't have a paycheck at all when you are paying high taxes when you're paying no taxes at all, when your children are healthy and obedient, when your children are sick and sinful, when your marriage is going well, when your marriage is going south, when gas prices are low, when gas prices are high, when all seems to be at peace in your life, when everything seems to be coming apart at the seams, bless the Lord at all times. And this isn't just an Old Testament concept that David ha- happened to have. The Apostle Paul repeats this idea in the New Testament as well. In Ephesians 5:20, Paul says, "Make melody to the Lord in your hearts giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." Paul repeated it to the Thessalonian church. He said, "Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. David put it this way, his praise is continually in my mouth. In other words, I can't stop singing. I can't help but be thankful. I have every reason to rejoice. Why? I do not sing because everything is going well in my life and all the circumstances are comfortable and predictable. I do not sing because I have a fat Sneg in my retirement and a satisfactory paycheck in the midst of inflation. I don't sing because of those things. I sing because I have a relationship with the God who created me, and I praise him because that is even possible. I sing because, come what may, I am his and he is mine. Nothing else matters. In fact, my soul makes its boast in the Lord, he says. I have nothing if it were not for God. I am nothing if it were not for God. I do nothing if not for God. I go nowhere if not for God. The Lord provides, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord gives life, El Shaddai. The Lord is my shepherd, Jehovah Ra. And because the truth of the matter is this, the only thing that we can boast in is the Lord. Jeremiah, the prophet Said this in Jeremiah chapter 9 Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. You can just picture David in this cave with these folks. And then Paul repeats this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, "And because of him, Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord." And when we boast about how great our God is and that we have the privilege of living life with him, that actually magnifies the Lord. And Paul uh, David says, "Magnify and exalt the Lord" together. So we do this individually and we do this together, corporately. We are in this together. The only thing that we can boast of as a group is that we have a relationship with the God who loves us and saves us and makes us righteous and justifies us. That is our boast. That is what unifies us. And now can you imagine hearing this from David in the, ca- in the cave of Adullam? You see David didn't rally the people around himself. He didn't make it a place where everyone who was disappointed with the government could come and gripe about it. He didn't make it an environment where people could jockey for position or fight for power or or pander for pleasure. No, David pointed everyone to the Lord. He rallied people around the goodness of God. He made the cave a place of hope and confidence in the Lord. He created an environment where people were encouraged to love their neighbor. The Lord was their boast. The Lord brought unity. The Lord was going to be the focus of their attention. And this is what the elders and I want for KMCC. This is what we pray for. A church that is rallied around the salvation and the goodness of God. This is a place where uh, these people provide a source of hope and comfort in God. This is an environment where people are encouraged to love our neighbors, where the Lord is our boast, where the Lord brings unity, where the Lord is the focus of our attention. If this is not the case for you, if that does not describe why you come here, then I'd encourage you to listen to David's wisdom psalm today and the heart of what the Spirit is saying to you. I'd encourage you to focus on the Lord and reach out to that individual in the church that God has laid upon your heart and love them as God has loved you. You, you see, David set the tone for this ragtag group of disgruntled refugees, and the elders and I want to set the same tone for you, because the desire of uh, for our attention to be upon the Lord comes from personal experience. And I want you to see how David lays this out. Our second point is seek the Lord, verse four. He says, "I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant." and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So it says that David sought the Lord. To seek carries the meaning of to look for with the eyes. But it also carries the meaning to inquire with the mouth. So seeking with the eyes and crying out with the mouth. So David sought the Lord for deliverance. Verse 4, David inquired of the Lord. He turned his face to the Lord. David said, God, help me. And the Lord delivered him from all his fears. God delivered David from the terrors within and from the fear without. God overcame the fabrications in his mind and the dangers that actually surrounded him. And David said, God, I'm afraid of this. I'm terrorized of that. Help me. And God delivered David as David sought the Lord for deliverance. David sought the Lord also, verse 5, for confidence. The word radiant carries the meaning of sparkling, cheerful, flowing like a stream. The word ashamed can mean confused or to blush. And, And so it says those who look to the Lord are radiant. They are confident. They are cheerful. Their countenance is at peace like a flowing stream. Why? Because their boast is in the Lord. Their strength is in the Lord. Their hope rests in something outside of themselves Outside of themselves. Their hope rests in the all-powerful, sovereign ruler of the universe, the God of love. And these people, he says, will never be ashamed or confounded. No need to blush or bow their heads in shame. Why? Because God answers every prayer the way that they want it to be answered? No, they are not ashamed because they are confident that God will not fail them. They are confident because God is able and he is faithful. So David also sought the Lord for salvation, verse 6. It's interesting, how could David say that the Lord saved him from all his troubles when it seemed that he was always in trouble? He was always on the run from Saul, right? How could he say that God heard him and delivered him when he had to act like an insane man to get out of a predicament? How could David say this when he was on the run, hiding in a cave, and leading a group of disgruntled and overtaxed refugees? God delivered me from all my troubles, right? Were his prayers being answered how he thought they would be? Not really. Have you ever been there? Interesting that David referred to himself as poor. Poor does not mean poverty here, but humble, afflicted, and weak. You see, David was humble before God. He lived his life in dependence upon God. He knew that sometimes he got himself into tough situations and that other times the tough situations found him. But he realized that every time he got out of a pickle, out of a situation, it wasn't by his own wit or strength, but by the wisdom and strength that the Lord provided for him. So David knew that the king's response to his insane act was orchestrated by God. David knew that it was the Lord who saved him from Saul time and time and time again. David knew that it was the Lord who brought those refugees to him in the cave. And because the Lord was the one who saved him and guided him, he rested and confident in God's protection. In verse 7, David sought the Lord for protection. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament uh, oftentimes re- refers to a theophany. A theophany is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And so Jesus, the messenger of the Lord, the word of God incarnate, encamps around those who fear him. Jesus delivers them. And he does the same today for you. Amen? Yeah, he does. So David has taught this bunch of refugees and us to bless the Lord, to seek the Lord, and to fear the Lord. Verse 8. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me, and I will... Teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How? How do I taste and see that the Lord is good? Every time I pray, it it goes the opposite. What does it mean to taste and see that the Lord is good when it doesn't feel like it? Verse 8, you take refuge in Him. You trust Him. You know, trust isn't easy, it is a conscious decision. It requires vulnerability, it requires humility. But God blesses the man or woman who trusts in Him. God's blessing may not look like everything going well in life, but He will bless you with peace and contentment and confidence in him. He says in verse 9, Fear him. This is not being terrified of God or afraid of him. No, this is holding God in reverence. Having a healthy respect for who God is, the position that he holds, the power that he wields. It is treating his grace and love and blessing with respect. And as David says, those who fear God have no lack. This doesn't mean that you'll have everything that you ever wanted in life. David's not teaching a prosperity gospel here. He was living in a cave when he wrote this, remember? So what he is saying is that you will not lack what you need when you need it. And Jesus promises much in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All these things will be added to you. The idea is this, focus on the Lord, not on what you need. Focus on the Lord, not on what you need. Don't concern yourself with your own desires, but concern yourself with the desires of God. So we taste and see God's goodness by trusting in him, fearing him, and seeking him, verse 10. To seek is to pursue. Who, when you were a kid, played uh, hide and seek in the dark? Who, as a kid here, does play hide and seek in the dark right now with your parents? Yes, I did. Okay, I did when I was a kid. Um, We always did it when mom was gone, just in case something got broken or someone got hurt. Or permanently lost. I don't know why that would help. But, <laughs> but when you play hide and seek, you're searching for something that's hidden, an individual. You're pursuing them, looking under every piece of furniture, behind every door, inside every cabinet, Right? To seek the Lord is to look for him in every corner of your life, to pursue him in the tragedies as well as the triumphs, to look for him in the confusion as well as the clarity, to search for him in the insane and also in the logical. Those who seek God will not lack the good things that they need, is what David says. Lions may suffer hunger, but those who seek God are filled. And here is why. Jesus said it in John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All good things are found in Jesus. And the invitation still stands. Even Peter said it. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2:3: like newborn infants, and we have some infants around here, think of them, as newborn infants long for, pursue the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, Peter even brings this psalm into mind. And it's my experience and a testimony of Scripture that once you've tasted that the Lord is good, there is no going back. Nothing tastes as sweet as the loving kindness of God to us. And this begs the question, do you want to do more than just taste the goodness of God? Do you want to live long seeing and experiencing the goodness of God? David asked that question. Then besides trusting and seeking and fearing, Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires long life and loves many days that he may see good? So you trust, you seek, you fear. And here's the next one. Remember? Remember. And what are we to remember? That God is listening and God is watching. Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So God is listening So speak the truth. Keep your tongue from evil. The power of life and death is in the tongue. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this, If anyone thinks he's religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That was Jesus' brother that said that. This knowledge of God isn't meant to cause us fear, but to make us accountable. Simply remembering that he is always listening, which is a good thing when we need him, and he is always attentive So be careful what you say. And he says, keep your lips from deceit. Don't speak half-truths. Don't try to manipulate the situation with your words. Don't try to deceive people into thinking you are one way when you are actually another. Speak the truth in love. And then he says, God is watching, so, verse 14, turn from evil. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Turn from evil and do good. This is the same advice that Paul gave to his apprentice, Timothy. He said, Flee youthful passions and pursue what is righteous, faith, love, and peace. To the Corinthian church, Paul said, Flee sexual immorality and pursue the Lord. God is saying to us in the Old Testament, New Testament turn away from what is evil, what is anti God, and run from evil, and then do good. Follow after God. Pursue what is right and faithful and loving and peaceful. It's your choice that you have to make. Seek peace and pursue it. Romans talk, uh, Paul talked about this in Romans 12, 18. He said, if possible, as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Hebrews 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So walking with the Lord, according to David, includes blessing the Lord, seeking the Lord, fearing the Lord, and finally, our last point: trusting. In the Lord. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ear toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So trust the Lord. Again, David uh, is reminding his people that the Lord is listening and the Lord is watching. The Lord looks to and listens for the righteous, verse 15:17. His eyes are toward the righteous. His gaze is upon them. And his ears are towards their cry. His his ears are cupped and facing in their direction. God sees those whom he has made righteous. God hears the cries of those he has redeemed. God listens and pays attention to his children, just like we parents do. But he says the Lord is against those who do evil, verse 16. Okay, so how can the Bible say on the one hand that God is patient and full of loving kindness, forgiving sin, desiring that all should come to repentance, and then on the other hand say that God is against those who do evil? How do you how do you have those two things in conflict? Which is it? Right? I'm going to let the Apostle Paul answer that question for you. And he does so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 and following. Paul is writing to believers who have suffered incredible persecution and suffering at the hands of evil men. Do you think of David and his men in the cave, it's the same type of situation. And Paul is writing the Thessalonian church to be a comfort to them, much like uh, David was trying to do with his men in the cave. And here's what Paul wrote. He said, God considers it just, listen, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When is he going to do this? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who believe. That's a long passage, but here's the deal. You see, evil people reject God and they refuse to repent. Those who do evil reject God's offer of grace. They do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does it mean to obey the gospel of Jesus? Obeying the gospel means to repent by admitting that the path you are on is wrong because it's not God's path. Obeying the gospel means believing that the only way off of that wrong path is through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. Obeying the gospel means doing what God commanded, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? That's what, that's what doing the gospel means. But it doesn't stop there. He says, then love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says that the people who refuse to obey the gospel will be punished. God's face is against them, and God considers this just. However, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted today? Has someone done something to you or just done something in general that has shattered your heart? Has sin shattered you? The sin of you or the sin of someone else? You physically hurt because of the decisions of yourself or someone else. Know this, brokenhearted people, the Lord is near you. And the Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit, the contrite, the humble, the wounded. The Lord is near to and saves those who are broken when they turn to him, like the broken people who went to the cave with David. And that is good news for so many of us. And Jesus said it too Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Lord delivers the righteous from afflictions, verse 19. Now, I want you to notice something. The Bible never promises an easy and pain free life. In fact, it paints the opposite picture. When you come into a relationship with the Lord, it's through brokenness and repentance and humility. And the trials and troubles don't stop just because you believe in Jesus for salvation. Many, verse 19, are the afflictions of the righteous. Like, wow, Lord, thank you. Appreciate that. Super encouraging for me to hear that right now. You made me righteous so that I may have many afflictions. This is wonderful. But here's the comforting truth in that. God will deliver because he's near. God will hear your cry because God is listening to you. God will see your afflictions because God is looking. Isn't that incredible? God sees you the wicked can't say the same thing those same afflictions in verse uh, 21 those same afflictions will slay the wicked because sin causes people to self-destruct the wicked have no one to help them no one to rescue them no one to rely upon they push God away and so God isn't there to help or deliver the wicked get eaten up, fatigued, broken by the afflictions and sins of life. And David says those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Jesus is called the righteous one. Jesus is the one who makes people righteous. When evil people hate Jesus or his people, God doesn't overlook that. They will be condemned. They will be punished. God protects those who are his and he punishes those who hate his beloved son and his beloved children who are adopted into his family as his. You see, the Lord, the last verse, redeems and justifies those who take uh, refuge in him. And this is the gospel in the Old Testament. The Lord redeems his servants. He delivers you. He rescues you from your sinful predicament if only you are the one who looks to him for salvation. And none of those who take refuge in the Lord Will be condemned. It's a wonderful promise. If you take refuge in Jesus, you are justified. You will be pardoned. Your record is expunged, case closed, sins cleansed, transgressions shredded at the cross. Now, I want to end this message with an application. If you tend to tune out at this time because you heard me say the word end, I urge you to listen <laughs> intently. Scripture is not given simply for knowledge. God has given it to us so that we hear it and we obey it, resulting in sanctification by the Holy Spirit. He cha- sanctification is the Spirit changing us from the inside as we listen to God's Word and we obey it. It's this interplay. I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3 in a minute, verse 8 and following. And In this passage, the Apostle Peter actually quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16 and he uses it as the basis for how we as Christians should act towards one another and how we should respond to affliction and suffering. You see, David was tasked with leading a group of refugees and castaways and and forming them into a community that loved and served the Lord. And Peter was also tasked with leading a group of refugees and castaways and forming them into a community that loved and served the Lord Jesus. Peter's Uh, first letter is written to exiles in the dispersion, he says. It's no wonder that Peter quotes Psalm 34 because they were exiles too. And here's the point. We are a group of ragtag refugees and castaways that have been saved by Jesus and he is bringing us together into a community, the church, so that we love and serve him. And so to be obedient to God's word and to heed the spirit of what David and Peter are calling their ragtag group of refugees and us to do means this. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. It's fascinating to me. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing." Unity of mind, he says. We are to be unified as a congregation here in North Prairie. It's super easy as individuals to come to this church with our own desires and our own ideas of how it should be or how things should go. First on David's list and first on Peter's list was an understanding of though you are here as an individual, the group doesn't exist for you. The church exists for Jesus. And he wants us to be unified around him. Unity comes as a result of focusing in our eyes on him and then being sympathetic to one another's struggles and difficulties, temptations, and trials. We all come with those baggages. We don't judge or compare. We don't ridicule or condemn. We are sympathetic and we choose to demonstrate brotherly love to one another. This means that we all must choose to do what's best for the other person, even if they don't deserve it. We choose to love everyone here even if it doesn't feel like I'm being loved. Because again, the congregation exists for Jesus. It doesn't exist for you. Love is best shown to one another through having, as Peter says, a tender heart. A tender heart is a heart that is compassionate, a heart that is eager to listen to the Spirit of God and a heart that is eager to listen to others in the family of God. You want to love someone well? Listen to them. With a humble mind. A humble mind is one that doesn't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. How does that play out in real life? Well, Peter tells us do not repay evil for evil, but instead, what are you to do? Bless. To bless means to praise or to celebrate, to speak well of. David said, bless the Lord at all times. And Peter's saying, bless others at all times. Even when people are not treating you well. Even when people are evil towards you. Even when people are reviling you. Now come on, Peter. You don't live in the real world, do you? I can't be expected to bless people who do evil to me, who ruin my reputation, who treat me like garbage, who, who swear at me and block me on social media. I can't be expected to bless them, can I? I want you to look where Peter draws his conclusion from. and It's fascinating. Where does Peter get this recipe for living a healthy community in the midst of diversity and adversity? From King David's Wisdom Psalm, Psalm 34, written to people who were suffering under the unjust rule of a narcissistic and jealous king who did nothing but raise taxes and steal money from them. You see, David lived in the real world, and so did Peter. And by the way, they know what they're talking about. 1 Peter three ten. So he says, You're supposed to live in unity and all these things, right? Bless for, verse 10, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's finish this passage and look how Peter wraps up his appeal to obedience. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Remember? Pursue what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, when, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. David talked about pursuing good. Peter elaborates on this concept. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? You people being chased by Saul and the the people of Gath, right? You people who are overtaxed and run out of your homes. You exiles of the dispersion in the early church. You people who are living in tumultuous times in the U.S. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. God is listening. Because here's the truth, verse 14, even if you suffer for following God and for living a righteous life, you will be and you are blessed. And from that place of blessing, confidence, security, community, because of all that Jesus has done for you, Peter says, don't be afraid and don't be troubled. Not not of your enemies or of anyone else for that matter. He says when you are slandered, not if, but when. In other words, it will happen. When that happens, live for Jesus and walk in his ways. Why? You have no need to be ashamed or blush because Jesus is always there for you and he is faithful. He will never let you go. In fact, if you live for Jesus unashamed to proclaim his goodness in your life, unhindered from loving others as he has loved you, those who revile you will be put to shame. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, David wanted this to be the culture of his 400 refugees. The only way that they could live in the wilderness and make it was if they blessed the Lord at all times, sought the Lord with their whole heart, feared the Lord, and trusted the Lord with their lives. And as they were obedient to these principles, God's Spirit would be faithful to work in them a heart of unity and sympathy, love, compassion, humility, and blessing. And guess what? When David became king, that was what was characteristic of his kingdom. And that's what characterizes God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. And I pray that this would be the culture of our church. We will bless the Lord at all times. His praise continually in our mouths. Our souls make their boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these practical passages. Your word is not just fluff. It's not just something to hear go in one ear out the other. It's not just knowledge, but it's it's life giving truth. And Lord, we, we know that as we, as we um, orchestrate our lives around Jesus and we seek to live for him and like him, that God, your blessing is upon us. And these times are troubling, I will say. There's a lot of things going on in this world that are not, not easy for us to, to, to go through. They're difficult. And yet your word says that you are listening to our cry and you are watching us and the afflictions that we go through and that's enough for us. We thank you that you love us and you care for us. You have us in the palm of your hands and that you will carry us safely into our eternal home with you. What a blessed hope. I pray that as we go through these trials, as things are difficult, that God, we would point others, that we would have an answer for them, a reason for the hope that we have. This hope is real, and it's alive, and His name is Jesus. May we point people to Him, the author and finisher of our faith. We thank You for Your Word to us today, in Jesus' name. Amen.